This week on Page 180, my old pal David Kent joins me to preview the Six Nations. The two Kevs are back to discuss a Game Changer episode of The Last of Us. Plus, we'll have reviews of The Fablements, You People's Shotgun Wedding, and Unwelcome, and much more. Still to come on Page 180. Guys, episode four. I think it's uh, now getting close to the stage where this is no longer just a New Year's resolution and it actually might be a thing that I just do regularly. So uh, thank you for supporting. I hope you're enjoying it. Any feedback, more than happy to uh, hear you out and and what you guys would like to hear more or less of or anything at all uh, as we kind of grow and evolve the show. Oscar nominations were last week. Obviously, we released a show since then, but I wanted to uh, take a week to kind of process things and kind of see how I felt and kind of look at the bigger picture. And every year around this time, when the nominations come out, I kind of have a little moment and I kind of have to start talking to myself and give myself a little calm down, uh, come to Jesus chat when the nominations are released because you know, we all go in with our own personal ideas of what we like and what our favorite nominations are. And then obviously the Academy comes along and and has its say, and it's never going to match anyone's individual ones. And I kind of have to be like, you know what? They have their opinion. It's not a representative of what the best movies are, even if it is the biggest award ceremony and all this stuff. And I talk myself down and then I'm calm and I don't mind. But this year it was a little different because when I started having that conversation, I'm like, do you know what? Like, I actually have a podcast where I talk about movies and TV. So, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to get mad. That gives me good content. Let's do this. For me, this set of nominations. And obviously, look, there's a lot of good news. If you're an international listener who's found this through social media or whatever, uh, you'll notice them speaking with an Irish accent. So you're like, what are you mad for? This is a really good year for you guys. And I will get onto that shortly. But for me, I think the one thing I always kind of end up saying when I rationalize this is how the Academy essentially is just a political sphere. And it felt like in previous years, they'd done kind of the political business and said the right things. So now it's just back to BAU. And I'll give you an example. Like, for example, Parasite got the best picture nod a few years ago. So now we don't even need to care about any Korean movies anymore. So despite the fact that Decision to Leave was unequivocally one of the most entertaining movies last year. I don't know if it's the best movie last year, but like it's definitely up there. Uh, It gets snubbed from all categories. It's just like that doesn't exist because we said Parasite was good a few years back. A few years ago, we had obviously the Oscar So White controversy. And then uh, the next year you had uh, The Lights of Moonlight, Mahershala Ali and Viola Davis all winning big. So this year as well, it's like, no, Viola Davis, you had your moment. And Danielle Deadweiler, no, it's grand. Despite the fact that they deserve to be in the mix for best actress at least one of them nothing no that's it they're they're out the irish like i said had a good year and again like you can kind of celebrate this a lot of people are going out and say jesus well look at us look at us fair play but for me i look at it slightly different we should have cleaned up we easily released some of the best movies that were out of all year i think two of my top three movies were irish movies and i'm the type of person who as anyone who knows me long enough will know, I'm not the type of person who believes that just because something is Irish, we need to support it or we need to say it's necessarily good. But I genuinely felt that they were the best movies of the year. And 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 kind of if you look through my year-end list, which I released as kind of the pilot episode of page 180, you'll have Irish movies and projects dotted throughout there. And even the likes of Paul Mescal and stuff like that as well, thriving in, in the individual categories. So again, I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right when we get the 14 nominations. 
the main thing that kind of got to me was the a large bulk of those 40 nominations came for one movie in particular, and that's uh, Banshees of Inisherin. And I'm not going to go out here and say that Banshees wasn't a good movie. It was. I enjoyed it at the time. I gave it a, a fine review. It wasn't one of the best movies I've seen all year by any means or any stretch of the imagination. But I watched it on a Sunday afternoon and I had a, a fun Sunday afternoon. I kind of forgot about it as soon as it was over. It didn't really stay with me or linger. It wasn't really about anything to be able to do so. And that was that. It was Grant. And I forgot about it. On the other hand, you have On Colleen Keel, The Quiet Girl. Which, yeah, of course, it got nominated for Best International Movie, and that's a, a great achievement, considering it's the, the first Irish language movie to get nominated for an Oscar at all. But for me, it's not enough, because it shouldn't just be the Best International Movie. It was one of the best movies altogether, period. Like, on Colleen Kuhn pisses all over the likes of Triangle of Sadness, which, again, not a horrible movie, but essentially it was like a mediocre episode of The White Lotus. Uh, Avatar Way of Water, are, are you messing? Are we Are we joking saying that that was better than on Colleen Kuhn? Tar? No. Elvis? Eh. All Quiet in the Western Front, a war movie that we've seen done better hundreds of times, except it's German this time. And yes, indeed, Banshees. But Banshees gets the nod because politically that's the right thing to do or because it's Colin Farrell's time or something like that or more likely because Hollywood loves us more than when we're actually telling stories about things that just happen to happen in Ireland and it's just an Irish movie about something else like On Colleen Kuhn isn't a movie about being Irish it's in the Irish language and there are definite elements of growing up and it'll give you kind of warm fuzzy nostalgic feelings of growing up in Ireland uh, and and of going on trips down the country to visit family like she does but it's essentially a story of a neglected girl who goes to visit family and gets the care she kind of deserves and it's a beautiful story that isn't about being Irish but I think international cinema seems to love us when we're you know we're making movies about the Irish condition, so to speak. Uh, the old uh, diddly eye, let's have some pints, boys, and that. Or I better milk the cows and all that kind of stuff. The traditional, almost borderline offensive stuff. And again, I'm not going to turn around and say that Banshees is, is a bad movie. A lot of people are coming out and kind of criticizing it. And I think part of that backlash comes with the fact that it's being overrated here. Let's call a spade a spade. Like, I'd say it's a fun Sunday afternoon movie that like that's because again it wasn't I didn't see it as trying to be more than it was but if we're going to say that it's the best picture if we're going to like try and judge it through that lens then I think we need to revise that review we need to kind of judge it a bit harsher and let's look at the the reality of it it's a movie where nothing really happens compared to the absolute transcendent Colleen Kuhn like it's a movie where characters at certain times will look across the water and see the Irish Civil War happening they're like geez I wonder what's happening over there and if in your movie your characters and the story points to something more interesting happening across the water then do you think for a fucking second that the thing that's happening across the water might be the thing that we're watching in the movie instead of this incredibly small <laughs> time pile of nothingness that's going on in front of us. There was an article that I read during the week written by uh, Mark O'Connell for, for Slate. And it kind of, it, it nails Martin McDonough, who again, I think gets a pass for a lot of what he writes. Because a lot of the stories are are about Irishness and being Irish and starred the likes of Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell and so on, like he wrote In Bruise and stuff like that as well. But Martin McDonough... <laughs> I think he gets a pass for being able to say and do a lot of things because his name is Martin McDonough and we assume a lot with that name. Martin McDonough's not Irish. 
he just he doesn't claim to be Irish. He were again. I, I appreciate how he has the name McDonough, and he like writes about Irish, and I appreciate how that would be confusing as to how that person would not be Irish. But he's not. He was born and raised in London. He did have Irish family that he visited uh, in the, in the west of Ireland, and that kind of inspired a lot of his work. But I think what the article summed up really, really well, and I have retweeted it on, a, on the Page 180 Twitter, so if you want to have a look at Page 180 pod, there's a thing where like, a lot of his characters, when you look at it, are paddies. And, and, and that's what Banshees is about. Like, you have Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson fighting and unable to like verbalize or vocalize why they're fighting or what's going on or what's actually causing this 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 rift that's developing in their friendship. You have them unable to kind of express themselves or unable to, and that's played for laughs because I oh, Jesus, look how stupid the Irish were in the 20s. Um Brendan Gleeson reacting to the situation by like and and again, I, I don't want to give too much away, but a lot of people will have seen this movie by now, cutting parts of his body off instead of just actually communicating like a normal human. You have Barry Kogan's, who, again, I think is, is vastly overrated in this movie. I think if you look at this movie, I, I, I wasn't a fan of Barry Kogan in that. There's a lot of videos going around. Look at him. Oh, look at him acting. Look at him acting. Look at, look at what he's doing. And I admit, he is doing a lot of different things, but kind of good acting is really more about like a character or an actor who is using, you know, facial expressions, intonation in his language, uh, making dramatic choices that gives you insight into what his character is thinking, feeling, planning, and and kind of allows you to kind of follow the plot or get a deeper understanding of that. And while it's certainly clear that Barry Keoghan is, is doing a lot of things and making a lot of gestures, it's never clear what his character wants, what their motivation is, how they're feeling, what is causing that. Again, it's just, he's just doing a lot of things. He's just being a bit of a weirdo. And I don't mean the character. I mean, Barry Hogan is being a bit of a weirdo in this movie um, and just playing a simpleton. And again, the one person who's who seems to have their shit together, Colin Farrell's character's sister in the movie, is just leaving. And and that's kind of the condition that that's true in a lot of McDonough projects where it's like, if you have any sense... You're getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> and it's a bit offensive when you kind of see it through that lens. And I think I love this this piece from the, the article that Marco Cuddle wrote. And he goes, it's a, it's a characteristic of McDonough in general. For all its reputation for darkness and perversity, his work is expertly crafted light entertainment, passing itself off, sometimes almost convincingly, as provocative, serious art. And that's the point. It's not art. He literally, the only point he's making here is Irish are symbols. And, and we're kind of lapping it up and we're kind of patting ourselves on the back. What actually we do have an amazing film in, in, in on Colleen Kuhn. And like the thing that's annoying me here is I wouldn't have minded if on Colleen Kuhn hadn't got nominated for anything because in th- at that stage, I would have been able to be like, oh, well, the, the Academy probably just didn't see it. But the fact that they did and they still thought Banshees of Inish Aaron was the better movie. Like, what are you doing? There's no question if you watch the two together. The only thing you have is that we're speaking in our own language and we're not, we're not, being paddies, we're not being fucking Egypts. And that's the only difference between the two. On Colleen Gune is clearly a better movie. And so you may be wondering, like, with these strong feelings that I've fueled and poured petrol on and indulged in for this year because I have a podcast and it allows me to do so, you may be wondering, 
am I still going to watch the Oscars or am I going to boycott it or am I just going to leave it and just kind of get on with things and just kind of go, I don't need their validation for what I think the best movies are. And the question, if you're asking is, am I going to watch it? The answer is, I mean, of course I'm going to watch it. Yeah, obviously, look at what I do. Look at what I'm interested in. Yes, I'm going to watch it. And like, come on, of course, you're probably going to watch it or at least pay attention to Will Smith slapped a guy on TV last year. A few years ago, they got the best picture wrong. And let's put this into context as well. Like this was the year after Oscar's So White when they're trying to prove themselves oh we couldn't be racially biased no us and literally on the stage then when a movie about black culture in that year when the Oscars are trying to prove as much and actually have voted it as the best picture instead what gets called out is La La Land a movie where about a bunch of white people portraying about how great Hollywood is and the only reason you can actually subscribe to that is Warren Beatty just had the biggest Freudian slip ever and he just was like well, we're obviously not going to give it to the black movie we're going to give it to the movie with the white lads talking about how great Hollywood is because that's always what we do and they called it out on stage on live TV even a few years ago and this is not as funny but it is still like a hot mess Chadwick Boseman they flew out his family uh, presuming that he would get a Best Picture nod and instead they gave the picture to Anthony Hopkins who got a yet another Best Actor award that he couldn't even accept because he wasn't there because of COVID. I'm going to watch this but I'm not watching it because it should be taken in any way seriously or credibly as as uh, giving awards to the best movies. I want to watch this because it's an absolute hot mess and it's going to be gas. But again, I'm going to let you finish Banshees of Inish Aaron. Blanc, Collie and Queen was one of the best movies of all year. And I'm going to go down with that ship. I can stand over there. Anyway, speaking of some of the best movies of the year, we're in award season. Let's see what some of the best movies of this year are. Is We'll discuss uh, the new releases for this week. Let's get into some reviews. As some of you may know, Dee Dee and I were, a hundred years ago, we're engaged. But she called it off. Aww. No, 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 no. She was waiting for Tom. And that guy right there has got to be a one in a million supernova to snag that beautiful soul. Thanks, Sean. So in conclusion, I just want to say one thing to you, Dee Dee. Katukachi. <laughs> Shotgun Wedding is Jennifer Lopez and Josh Duhamel's new rom-com released last weekend on Amazon Prime Video. We follow Darcy, played by Lopez and Duhamel's Thomas. They're about to have an idyllic destination wedding. However, once Darcy's ex, who's played by Lenny Kravitz, shows up, things begin to feel wrong and it escalates quickly until pirates eventually hold the wedding hostage and it pretty much just becomes diehard. This is about as good as a straight-to-streamer action-adventure rom-com led by two former pop stars sounds. At first, the positives. Jennifer Lopez is still gorgeous at 53, something that I think she had it written into her contract must be acknowledged by all involved at every available opportunity and, uh, and just marvelling at how she defies the ageing process alone is reason enough to give this a try uh, also Jennifer Coolidge is in this which to be honest was the only reason I even watched it to begin with uh, but they only gave her a few chances to actually be Jennifer Coolidge when in reality all of us here, here after the White Lotus we're all crying for the JC extended universe the MC Coolidge uh, I think that's all what we want to happen now uh, so every scene where she wasn't in 
felt like a bit of a waste for me because I'm literally only here for that good, good uh, fix of Coolidge. Uh, look, there are a couple of laughs in this. If you have a movie night or a, for a date or a catch up with a friend where you just need something mildly entertaining on the background to talk over that you're not afraid you'll miss anything of, this is perfectly fine for that. Uh, as an actual movie, though, this is a total non-event. There's nothing you haven't seen done better a million times before here. You're literally just watching famous people get paid. Uh, it isn't awful, but it doesn't actually offer anything either. So I, I'm not going to spend any more time or energy on it. Well, you live here. Can you believe it? Honey, I'm home. <sighs> there is one more thing. The red cats. Is anyone there? When they'll need feeding. Every day. Unwelcome is an absolutely awful movie and you need to go see it immediately. It's a folk horror and comedy question mark by Mark Stay and directed by uh, John Wright. Wright originally pitched this movie as Gremlins meets Straw Dogs. Uh, you may know Wright from his previous work on the cult favourite Grabbers movie which kind of lets you know what you're in for here. Uh, I'm reticent to give you any plot details as it's one of those you should just go in knowing as little as possible about and just let the whole what the fuckery of it all wash over you as it unravels. So I'm going to reveal the absolute minimum here. The movie follows young couple Jamie and Maya, who are played by Douglas Booth and Hannah John Cammon, uh, as they move to a secluded rural area of Ireland to Jamie's great aunt's home, seeking security as they try to overcome the trauma that came from them being attacked in their own home in England previously. Upon moving, though, they're given a stern warning about something called a fire jarrig or red cats, and things go on from there. The movie initially bases itself in gritty reality and the leading couple are quite engaging in that sense. So as you hear kind of cringe-inducing Irish, like, oh, be the holy, accents creep in from people like Neve Cusack, who, by the way, are Irish, so there's no reason that they should sound like they're having a hokey accent. It becomes a bit jarring and really that small fries by the end as you've really no idea what you're in for. The movie starts to pick up when uh, there's a family of ne'er-do-wells that is kind of led by Colomini and excellent those guys from those things in Chris Wally who plays Jock from The Young Offenders, Jamie Lee O'Donnell, Michelle from Derry Girls and Kirsten Nairn who plays Hodor and playing a very Hodor-like role again. To give you a taste of what they're like and how random it is, there's a scene where Colomini constantly repeats the phrase Col Call me daddy in the most Colomini way over and over that will haunt my dreams but had me and the entire cinema I watched it in in hysterics. So the cast is kind of low-key amazing and you're wondering just what the hell they were all smoking signing up to this atrocious stain on the movie industry as it goes on. Then the movie kind of reveals its hands and well I can't speak for how you're going to take it because it is very subjective but for me it actually became an incredible experience because you're wondering the entire time is this movie trying to be shite? Is it kind of a comedy in disguise? Is it winking at us the whole time? And the answer having come out the other side is, I, I don't actually know. If, if it's a wink, it's a wink so subtle that you could just mistake it for an awkward blink. But I had a really good time watching it and I think everyone else did too. There were constant audible laughs at key moments and moments where I couldn't help but join in loudly myself. And by the so final scene, I was all in and I think everyone else watching around me was too. And I wonder how the hell we got from point A to whatever the hell was happening now. I heard someone describe the ending as a bit midsummer like And yeah, I have to say they did go very left in a midsummer 
some are kind of way. So if you like that, you'll probably end up kind of getting into this. Uh, and at this time of year in award season, where we're used to seeing some very heavy, serious movies about serious subjects that ask a lot of us as an audience member. Like I'm going to talk about the Fableman short, shortly and there's the whale next week too. And don't get me wrong. These are good movies that I enjoy and I enjoy discussing, but at times it can feel like work or a lecture. This felt like a few hours off and just taking a few hours off to be silly for a while. Uh, it's both God awful and iconic at the same time. A real so bad it's good classic that I actually will plan on going back to. I will watch this movie again and I'll kind of enjoy it for what it is because I'll actually understand it then. Uh, so please, please, I would love if you could go see this and then reach out to me when you have so we can kind of share quotes and memes about it. It is so nice to meet you guys. What's going on? Tell me about life. How are you? How's work? So you want to marry my daughter? Yes. Yes, I do. So do you hang out in the hood all the time or do you just come up here for our food and women? It's a valid question. It is. What's the difference between me and you? If Amir and I had a baby, it would be a very nice baby. Mixed race people are really awesome. You know, you have like Mariah and... Derek Jeter, and then of course you have the, the goat. The goat. The greatest of all time. Yeah, I know what it means, but who are you referring to? Our guy, the legend, Malcolm X. What in the mother? What's the difference between me and you? And she's not pregnant because we don't even do that much stuff. She's not a prude. She knows her way around it, and that's okay. that, and I respect. I, I, and then what I'm saying is, I love your daughter, and I would make a good husband. Ain't this about a bitch? Where's our waiter? I am starving. What's the difference between me and you? You talk a good one, but you don't do what you're supposed to do. You People is Netflix's new comedy and Kenya Barris's directorial debut with a rock-solid comedy ensemble featuring jo Jonah Hill, Lauren London, Eddie Murphy, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and David Duchovny, to name but a few. It's an unofficial comedy remake of the 1967 movie, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, about a white podcaster, obviously that part wasn't in 1967, uh, Ezra, who's played by Hill, meeting Lauren London's Amira, a black entrepreneur. They fall in love, but things get a bit sticky once they try to integrate their vastly different Jewish and black families into the equation. It comes at a really interesting time for comedy when we're not seeing these kind of middle-of-the-road comedies being made much anymore, when in the noughties they seem to pop up every single week when you think of the likes of 40-Year-Old Virgin, Step Brothers, Anchorman, Zoolander, Knocked Up and so on and so forth. Last year alone only, we only really had the aforementioned Banshees of Inisherin, Red Rocket, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent and they were the only real kind of comedy comedies that cracked above the parapet and even then they're not traditional comedy movies as we'd have previously known them. Part of that is financial due to the death of physical media where, where these movies would make a tepid amount at the box office. They'd probably make their money back but then go on to have a long profitable shelf life afterwards as they found an audience on the DVD market for years to come. You can get around that, though, uh, business-wise, when you consider that streamers can finance these and then perpetually own the content. So if you want to re-watch it as, as what is, makes these movies worthwhile and makes them make money, then if you're, if you're the streamer who makes it, you will permanently have it if you finance it. The other contributing factor, though, which has stunted the industry was vocalized by the Hangover creator Todd Phillips a few years back while he was promoting Joker, where he blamed woke culture for destroying the industry. As according to him, the likes of Me Too and Black Lives Matter left comics afraid of what they can and can't say and being cancelled. That's arguable, arguable, I'd say, and I think there's a big debate to be had over whether that's actually true. Maybe you could argue that it's an adjustment phase that's necessary, but uh, you can certainly see how at least comedians and, and, and directors and writers might feel this way and where they're coming from 
from and people you'd have once considered untouchable in the comedy world, the likes of Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K. and Ricky Gervais, have all faced reckonings of different variations over recent years. You people looks to blend both lines by tackling the serious social issues while also being the kind of goofy joke a minute comedy ensemble I personally have really, really missed in recent years. There's no secret sauce to its formula, Reezy. It turns out that the secret to all this is a tale as old as time that if you put really funny people in a potentially funny scenario and then let them just work and let them just vibe, then the end result is it's pretty funny. It's not rocket science. They also illustrate that everyone was way overthinking how to handle these delicate, potentially difficult subject matters as they really just say the quiet part louder and the approach just works. You're gonna get you're only gonna get cancelled after all if you've only if you've got something to hide. And if that's not the case, then you don't have to worry about speaking freely. In case it's not obvious by now, I really enjoyed you people. Eddie Murphy and Julia Lewis Dreyfus were at their best playing it straight and being given just space to breathe and be funny. They just have a funny presence an aura about them and when you let them just let that out in their own time and space it just works from the second Murphy appeared on screen he wasn't even particularly doing anything but his presence alone was absolutely hilarious and you instantly understood his character and everything about it Dreyfus as well is perfect at being all of our embarrassing mothers too I'm still laughing about the line where she said something like I talk about police brutality all the time I talk to Marilyn I talk to Suzanne I talk to Cindy it's a real hot topic (laughs) He is brilliant. Uh, And after taking some time to explore other dramatic roles and rack up his credibility points, this is kind of a welcome return to the super bad style of loose improv comedy that made us all fall in love with Jonah Hill to begin with. His relationship with London crackles from the meet you when he mistakes her for an Uber driver and holds both the comedic and social side of this down. This movie had me giddy laughing almost every minute from the get-go. I loved it and I really hope this does well so Netflix and other streamers see the value in a goofball comedy resurgence that I think we all want and I think a lot of us have missed. It's a lot. Uh-huh. It's sort of a shrine, almost. A shrine to guys. Lots of guys. They're sexy. I guess. I mean, not Jesus. Jesus is sexy. Isn't that like a sin or something? I don't know. He came to us as a man. A handsome young man. He could have come as a girl, or an old man, or someone with leprosy, but... Nobody knows what he really looked like. Probably he looked like you. Oh, because... Because he was... Jewish. My handsome Jewish boy. Just like you. The Fableman's a Steven Spielberg semi-autobiographical movie loosely based on him growing up and learning to love movie making from childhood to college. It's currently cleaning up in awards and is in the mix for the best picture nod. And the movie ticks a lot of the boxes that we're used to seeing at this time of year. First off, it's a movie about Hollywood and the joy of filmmaking with some powerful capital A acting performances directed by a Hollywood legend who's overdue for some recognition. The challenge for me is how to not do what Babylon couldn't resist and make it almost a bit of a desperate love letter to Hollywood, shamelessly begging for attention by tickling the balls of the Academy. I'm glad to say that in this case, it didn't, and this is a really entertaining watch. It's also a very Steven Spielberg watch. Spielberg has an uncanny knack for gently and beautifully moving the story along, challenging you enough to give the movie enough friction to keep it on the tracks, but also not enough to disconnect you by making you think too much about what's going on. He's a director who conjures a subtle beauty 
beauty in his films while also managing to stay out of his own way. It's wild based that an almost defining characteristic of one of the few directors every single film goer, no matter how casual can name, is that you never really think about his direction when watching his movies, even in a movie that's loosely based on him. But the fact that we still end up discussing his talent is a testament to the connections that we build with the characters and stories as a result of him just getting out of the way. Given that the core of the story is all very fuzzy and warm, so it's young boy falls in love with cinema, has a natural talent for it, and he engages in his hobby until it starts to become a successful career, is to create some drama without that feeling manufactured but not derailing that core story that he's trying to tell. That's the one area that makes this stop short of being considered along the all-time Oscar classics, though, although the effort he puts in is admirable. To give the movie dramatic tension, Spielberg focuses predominantly on both the family secret that risks destroying everything, as well as a kind of flimsy anti-Semitic bullying subplot that it doesn't really have the time for or the energy to delve that deep into. We keep it tangentially related to the main plot of his love of cinema by having big reveals done so through him recording home videos, which to me, if I'm being honest, it feels a little bit contrived and tryhard, uh, truth be told. But it's not something that necessarily bothers you while watching, but it did feel a bit cheap when I reflected about it afterwards. You don't think about it because the movie is just a nice, warm place to live in for a few hours with actors who are comfortably smashing it. Michelle Williams absolutely earned her Best Actress nomination for her portrayal of main character Sam's mother, Mitzi. Her role in arc is quite complex and potentially triggering for many watching, so she almost has to walk a tightrope of both not letting her off the hook for her decisions by giving her too many excuses and the damage that they caused, uh, while also not turning the character into a villain and keeping them someone that believably can still be loved and empathised with by their loved ones at the end of it all. Her, Kate Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh have made this one of the strongest best actress races I can recall in recent memory, although I am still going to shout out for Viola Davis and Danielle Deadweiler. We keep that connection and investment because some small ingenious choices by Spielberg make all the difference. At one stage, for example, he's showing one of his home movie revelations to a character and instead of us actually watching the revelations which we kind of know what's coming, we see it through the eyes of the character in one iconic long continuous shot that allows said character to really work. It's extraordinary and you can really hear every thought they have through that revelation uh, through the small facial expressions and the reactions that they give us. In the interview, Seth Rogen, who holds his own in a dramatic role without actually distracting, has spoken of how Spielberg regularly got emotional on set seeing how things played out. And while I can't speak to the accuracy of some of the scenes portrayed, obviously, I feel comfortable saying that he's done this autobiography proud by producing a stellar bit of work worth seeing. I don't think it should win Best Picture, but it definitely does deserve the recognition and praise it's getting and is one of my favourite movies of the year so far. Time to turn to it for the first time in page 180. Uh, we're going to look at the world of sport and what's coming up next, because obviously that's a big focus that we have here too. And this weekend is obviously a huge weekend for Ireland. It's that time of year. We've had some good results. We're flying high and we're looking at the Rugby World Cup. Here it is. Finally, is this the year they get past the quarters? Everyone's asking themselves, we've been here before. But is this any different? Is this time going to be the exception to prove the rule? Uh, we're coming into number one world ranked. And obviously I'm talking about the Six Nations, which begins this weekend as uh, Ireland kick off in the opening match against Wales. Here to break down the Six Nations and kind of give us an insight into what we're looking for is an old pal. If you listen to me in the Low Blows Network days, you'll know him from being on Low Blows itself, from being uh, occasional appearance on the old Nash podcast. And of course, he was my sidekick to uh, the... Uh, 
and, and co-host for the old Paddy's New Yacht Show that we ran, uh, a weekly sports show. It is the one and only now working for the Irish Examiner's dream job of all things. Uh, David Kent, uh, you're very welcome to Page 180. How are you? Yeah, but moving on up in the world, really, since since we last spoke. Uh, as, as you mentioned, down, down now in the paper, but in the news side of the paper, so I can really watch as much sport as I want without having to worry about reporting on it, which is a nice after about 10 or 15 years of having last minute goals and last minute tries ruin match reports at the last possible second. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And it's it's beautiful. <laughs> nice. I love it. Yeah. Now it's just officially your hobby. Except for when I ask you to come back and just do a bit of analysis on it and ruin everything. Um, I want to just do a quick temperature check because obviously, like I said, we do this every World Cup cycle. We peak the year beforehand. And then, as has been the case in the previous two years, 2019, like again, we kind of came in like you know, should we be the favourites for the World Cup? And then you, we started the whole Six Nations by losing to England and lost to Wales in the final day and finished third in the whole thing. Uh, in 2015, we won the Six Nations, but Wales beat us. And that kind of set us up for the, the disappointment, obviously, with Argentina tearing us apart in the quarterfinals. Uh, it's where the cracks traditionally start to show. How are you feeling about that? Are you feeling as nervous as me? Or is this just a coincidence? It's happened the past two times, but that is no reason... That's no reason to say that's going to happen this time because we're coming in the number one ranked in the world. How are you feeling? I think that it is a bit different to uh, previous occasions where we, as you, as, as you say, we've, we've come in number one before and we've come in off the back of Autumn Series where we've beaten New Zealand, where we've beaten Australia, where we've beaten South Africa, we've beaten X, Y, Z. I thought that we might have got away with it this time around without the kind of um, going over the top on the hype machine. Don't get me wrong. Fully, fully fine with there being um, larger expectations and greater expectations around Ireland coming into World Cup here, just historically, because as you say, number one in the world, one of the best teams in the world, on the pitch to watch, off the pitch with our setup, um, with our coaches and stuff like that. I thought then that we might learn from previous errors when we beat New Zealand, obviously, in 2019, mm-hmm. or in 2018, let's say, the Auckland 2018, um, and then got overhyped coming into 2019. They, they they did a number on us. So it's not right. We beat them once in the first test, or sorry, the second test after we beat them in Auckland. I was like, okay, listen, we've got the win out of the way. That's fine. No, there won't be any extra hype. It'll just like, because it's won all in the series. And then we went and beat them again. And so we won the series in New Zealand. And suddenly yeah. it was like, oh, can't we? And I'm like, we've been here so many times before. <laughs> and who do we play in the quarterfinal if we get through to the quarterfinal in... Uh, in about uh, sort of seven months' time now, it's either France, who we were, we're going to talk about in a minute, in about 10 minutes, I'd say, or it's New Zealand again, and New Zealand at a World Cup. So, I'm like, that's all in the future. For the Six Nations, I'm quite, I'm, I'm, I'm content with how we're looking. Okay. Particularly, it's interesting. Yeah, particularly in comparison to uh, how other squads and other coaches and other organizations are looking. We'll get into that in a bit. Yeah, like, and, and that's kind of the thing. On one hand, you have ourselves with France. So this is, on one hand, possibly at the top end of it, the strongest Six Nations of all time. Because I don't think, have we ever had a Six Nations since it's been the Six Nations where the top two ranked teams in the world were Southern Hemisphere teams? I I, I don't, I can't remember that happening. I don't know off the top of my head, but 
we're coming in with them being really strong, but then the other nations having a bit of a dip. England, obviously, in a huge uh, sense of transition. One thing I really like is the fixture list really bounces our way. Like, the games that you'd kind of worry about, obviously, France... England is always going to be spicy. It's always going to be interesting. Obviously, on the very last day, um, we're going to get a bit nervous at that. We have both of those games at home. And we're playing Scotland at home as well. And then we have Wales away. Wales, you know, it's 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 not as it was. It's a bit of a strange time. But Warren Gatland is, is Warren Gatland. And he knows how to win these. And then we've got Italy away, which hopefully, you know, will we'll go as, as, as always does. Is there any ner- games you should be nervous about or any games that we should be... Like, that is a really soft landing. I am very confident looking at that schedule because home advantage in rugby is... It's one of the, the sports where home advantage is still very, very prevalent and true, especially in the Six Nations. Yes, yeah. Abs- absolutely, yeah. And, it's, and as you mentioned, particularly Six Nations, just because it's, it's almost a closer a closer-knit community when it comes to the rugby, uh, rugby fans watching Six Nations. In terms of nerves, I actually agree with you with the France and England games, delighted they fell in the way they did. I'd be... I am, and I'm, I'm not going to say I'm, I would be because I am very nervous about the Wales, the Wales game to mm. kick off. And it is down to a couple of factors. Now, England very much in transition, as you mentioned. No real sense of what Steve Borsuk is going to bring like sag sacking Eddie Jones for me was harsh. Wales, like oh sorry, England bringing in Borthwick. Yeah, still gonna take some time to get the plan into action. Wales will want to call for Warren Gatland again, and if you take a look at the Wales squad, I actually I did a little bit of this. Go back to 2011 when Wales beat Ireland in the World Cup quarterfinal. Naturally enough, Warren Gatland is coach, and you look at the team that he's named for this Sunday. Or this Saturday, yeah, Saturday evening, isn't it? Is the uh, Wales game, and you've got five of the starting team from that game in 2011 starting mm. or, uh, on the panel, and four of them starting on Saturday. North halfpenny, Alan Wynne Jones, who somehow is still playing at the age of about 66, <laughs> and who is the other one? Uh, there's another one in there somewhere, but it's just like Tip, um, Justin Tipperick. So you're thinking, right. That's dangerous. Must be really old. And you're like, yeah, well, they are, but they're also playing with the same coach that they played with at international yeah. level for a long time. A, uh, a coach who never really had any plan from set pieces. He loves just keeping the ball in play, making like trying to force the errors, force the handling errors, forcing the pressure onto opposition teams. And like Warren Gatlin as an underdog, and he is the underdog going into this game against Ireland. Naturally enough, just based on form, the overall look into it. And then you talk about the, the Principality Stadium. Is the roof going to be open? Is the roof going to be closed? When it's closed, the game is a lot different because there's so much heat and atmosphere in there. It's closed under the roof. It's it's screaming banana skin to me. Yeah. I don't think it's great. Like Andy Farrell will have his team and whatever team he names, and has been named the time of recording, he'll have them well drilled as to the dangers. And players who have been around a while Conor Murray, Keith Earl, Sexton, they will know Warren Gatlin inside out just from playing against his team so often and even playing uh, against his cl- uh, some of his club players as well. So, I don't, but the thing is, it's a great, it is a great game for us to start because you talk about the France game the following week. Yeah. France are away at Italy to start. They're not going to get tested. Mm. They're not going to, I doubt they'll put out a full spread team. And even if they do, like, they're going to hammer Italy. They should hammer them. No, no disrespect to Italy. I like what uh, Kieran Crowley's doing with them. There's no reason that France should face any sort of a test there. I know, whereas you know Gatlin is going to put something 
or have something with sleeve that'll test Ireland. That's a great warm up to welcome the French the week after in the what probably will be the game of the tournament. Um, you get you, then yeah, then you're talking about listen, even if even a, a tight defeat to France, that's okay, we'll bounce back with Italy. Scotland, they tend to give one of the big boys a bloody nose each year. Usually England, England yeah. the last year. <laughs> um, but like they, they beat France in 2020 in Paris at COVID different, you know, a few months, a couple of months after the tournament ended. Still, if you're looking back on it, that was an incredible performance. So I I I wouldn't be overlooking them. And I wouldn't, I, and again, Farland, Farland lads won't, but I wouldn't be looking overlooking them and thinking about England on the last day on Paris mm-hmm. weekend. Like I see people talking already about, oh, that could be a grand slam winner for Ireland like all of Ireland's modern Grand Slams have come away from home yeah. so they came in Cardiff Twickenham and, and uh, Murrayfield never had one in the Aviva never had one in Lansdowne since 1961 or whatever it was so it's a possibility I would not be counting me chickens it's a very interesting one and and obviously look France is, is the big game and, and there's just there's no way to know until we know but yeah like you say there there are omens that there could be banana skins here again I think it's going to be us in France I think everyone kind of anticipates that and then everyone else is be just taking lumps or, or competing for second maybe if they can sneak in um, and maybe if us in France can take each other out and then kind of if someone can sneak in by getting a win over one or two of us um, but obviously then you have the likes of the recent victories for the likes of Austria and Edinburgh over the likes of Leicester and Saracens. The traditional kind of um, hierarchy, it's not to say that it's changing, there's a change in the guard, but there's a closening up of that, and that kind of is, is is an indicator there. Uh, could suggest that the, it'll be closer than we think as well. Um, and that, I kind of guess, goes to Andy Farrell and how he's going to manage it. I think one of the things that has impressed me about Andy Farrell's reign is how he's able to step up to pressure and deliver results. You know, not just performances, not plucky losses, results. The New Zealand, uh, the New Zealand tests being the key example. You know what I mean? Like I said, he's like, no, we want to win this, and we went out and did it in style by the end. So, I think we've got to look at what do you think his approach is going to be? Because we have the likes of Sexton, everyone talking about how it's probably his last six nations. Keen Healy and Keith Earls could be on the way out too uh, with this one as well. Do you go with the experience or do you try young blood? And do you kind of go, right, let's see, let's get some young blood battle hardened in time in a world cup year. Or do you say, right, no, we're actually better off going with the lads who know how to do this, who've done it before uh, several times and and kind of, you know, go in confident after getting results. What do you think his approach is going to be? Look, he's not stupid in the sense that he, um, he'll he know well that in his head what his best 15 is, but particularly when it comes to World Cup year, any performance, any 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 streakers in World Cup year, not, obviously not in the literal sense because that'd be weird, but in terms of like squads... Um, like if someone like obviously Osborne is a uh, Stuart Osborne or Jamie Osborne, I should say, is the big one, the big inclusion. Everyone was like, Oh my goodness, he's in such good form for Leinster. Like, he, he's put his hand up already for the World Cup, and you're like, Well, he's barely even cap, like, he, he doesn't have any caps, any major experience internationally. So, do you use this one to blood him in? Like, I can see their points from that sense because you don't want his first true taste of international rugby to be the World Cup warm ups. Mm. It's not going to be the same. Whereas if you put him in against the likes of Wales or the likes of England or France, he's going to get a bit of a bit of 
a bit of belter, but then even at centre, you've got Bundy Aki, there's a question over him, experienced, different type of player, more physical, but like consistently has had, I'm not going to say problems because he has working on them, but with his tackling technique, for example, he just, he, he tends to go a lot higher, red cards, yellow cards, and Norton, like, you know, it's World Rugby and it, it's coming again in 2023. They're really clamping down on head height and head tackles and shoulder tackles and protecting the player. So you got him, McCluskey, Osborne, there's a headache for them. But he's got such a good backroom staff behind him as well, like Simon Eastfield. Paul O'Connell, who has been in godsend for the Irish pack and the Irish forwards yeah. uh, since he came in. I think we all expected it to be eventually be a good coach. I didn't think we expected it to be um, this quickly. So, listen, I again, he's not going to put the strongest possible team out for every game. I, I wouldn't expect him to do it. I would hope he doesn't do it for Italy. And there's another situation really for me where I'd like to see him uh, in terms of blooding, I think in, in there's a possibility that if Ireland somehow are out of contention for the championship and the Grand Slam, or we, well, you know, we'll be out of both going into that last game against England, I wouldn't want Johnny Sexton within 200 miles of the Aviva if we oh, have wow. nothing to play for in that last really game. in his last Six Nations game, in his last Six Nations game, because Johnny Sexton. Listen, okay, maybe off the bench, but I wouldn't be starting him because there's too much of a risk with a World Cup year of Johnny Sexton, particularly with his issues in head injuries and concussions, of him taking a bad belt coming from an English player. And like, if you go without without Sexton into a World Cup, say Sexton gets another bad head duck and he's out for a while, you have no one to blood in. Like, you've got Ross Byrne. Uh, Carby will get a look in as well, but I'd Mm. imagine it'll be Ross Byrne is what, Farrell is looking at as a contingency plan for life after Johnny. Now, he said it's his last World Cup and his last year for Ireland. You wouldn't know with Sexton. Like, yeah. he could he, he, he could kind of, it's a bit like Tom Brady. One one thing could click in his mind or he'd have, like, he could miss a drop goal and suddenly that would drive him on to win yeah. another 20 URCs with Leinster if he really wanted to. Um, But, yeah, I'd imagine that Farrell is like Farrell is not going to be drawn in by what anyone is saying outside. He's not going to be drawn in what me or you are saying. He's not going to be drawn in what any of the pundits are saying on Virgin on RT. Any journalist because he'll know in his head and he'll have the right backing room and the right people talking to him uh, internally. And supposedly, look, you see, that's where experience comes into it as well. You mentioned Keith Earls and Connor Murray, and they were, they were kind of the two that people were looking at in the squad when the squad were named and like, huh, what, like. Barely even start for months, months of these days and in, in terrible form. Um, but then you're looking, and then Farrell actually was brilliant in coming out in the press conference the day after and went, If I'm turning around, if I'm in the heat of it in the Aviva against France and I'm turning around, I don't want the player to come in there with four caps. I want the player to come in there with 60 caps mm. and someone that he knows will be able to deal with that heat in the, in the heat of battle with 20 minutes to go and it's a one point game. And that's where, like, Earls Murray. Um, Keane Healy, as you mentioned, even Sean Cronin, like these older fellas who have been been there, done that, got their Grand Slam medals, can uh, can meld well together with kind of the emerging stars, the streakers for what might be a World Cup squad in 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 six months. Interesting. 
You mentioned it there, just to sidetrack a little bit. You spoke about Virgin and RTE there. I kind of want to get your thoughts because obviously, look, we focus on TV as well and, and kind of we want to get the kind of viewer's guide as well. Obviously, they're, they're sharing coverage again. Uh, RTE have the France-Italy-Scotland game. Uh, Virgin have Wales and England. Uh, RTE have the, their lineup is looking like Jamie Heaslip, Simon Zebo joining Hannah Ty- Ty- uh, Tyrell. And then obviously with Virgin, you have Joe Malloy hosting uh, with the likes of Rob Carney and Fiona, Fiona Hayes lined up. Uh, Rog was on last year uh, again you, you kind of might imagine he may be a bit busy now with La Rochelle but you wouldn't know if they got him lined up um, is there either way is there one side that you'll be kind of saying they're, they're winning this and this is the more kind of interesting compelling like the battles winning the battles I'm looking at Virgin versus Ortiz yeah. who's, who's got the, um, the better hand so far for me and uh that's always been the way, just purely from a commentary basis. Yeah, I would imagine Virgin Media will once again have Dave McIntyre on the mic. For my money, the best commentator in Ireland TV or radio um, has been for a good while. So in terms of my ears and my audible experience, I'll probably be tuning into Virgin when I can. Um, um, listen, nothing against Darty, nothing against uh, Hugh. Is Hugh? Oh, his name escapes me. Hugh, not Lennon, that's Donald Lennon. Ah, it'll come back to me eventually. But like, listen, in terms of punditry again, Matt Williams and Imagine will be on version. But then, like, he slipped. He was really coming into his own as a yeah. as an RT pundit. Same with Murray, uh, a genius draw to be getting Murray Kinsella and Bernard Jackman, mm. um, who are on another successful rugby podcast. I'm not sure if we're able to give them free exposure without being paid. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like they're they so RT clearly on the button with what people are listening to. Um, away from and away from Martin, away from road production. So, like it's 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 a great thread, and, and I do love the relationship, particularly with rugby. That um, the stations in Ireland have team have teamed up together. You obviously with yeah. the URC, you have um Martin TG Car, and now you got Six Nations on international, where it's pretty much free to air. Yeah. Um, so like it's 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 what it's what should really be on the protected list of uh yeah of sport and events sent to government each year of or every four or five years. Of like just events that you know and everyone knows in the world should not you shouldn't have to be paying for. Um so like for me, again, I'll probably lean into Virgin, but like I, I'll I'll also I'll also be led by the crowd in yeah. terms of what because Virgin will have an analysis obviously have the um if they don't have the Ireland games, they'll have one or the other two games and they'll have further analysis of the Ireland game. So if Ireland are playing on the on the Saturday night and Virgin of the game on Sunday, you'll obviously get the the Sunday morning analysis where you've kind of had time to breathe about it. So it's just it's a, and vice versa too. So it's a it's a lovely balance over. Um, but yeah, just for an audible experience, Dave McIntyre all the way. Yeah, look, and, and we don't have to choose. They're not covering the same games. It's not no. like ITV and BBC with the World Cup and all. So we're glad we don't have to choose. You, Cahill, was the person that you, you threw shade That's on, but then not oh, to remember of his name. It's Cahill. I, thought, I just kept saying <laughs> Linehan, and I'm like, no, it's Donald Linehan. So, so let's get down to brass tacks, okay? Because we've danced around this subject. France, let's talk about the elephant in the room, okay? There's good news, bad news here. The bad news is, you know, they're looking for their second consecutive Grand Slam. And last year, they trailed for just 13 minutes in the entire championship. You've got Antoine Dupont, who's un- they're unbeaten with him as captain. Since he's been captain, they've never lost, okay? Then you look at the results, right? Even like at last year, obviously, like we said, led for just or were trailed for just 13 minutes. And then like this year, they won like 
battle like if you're talking battle hardened you're looking at Australia South Africa and like they're winning these games but like in every single game that they had in November they scored over 30 points so like again they're winning they're 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 not they're not winning ugly they're winning in style and they're just they're like but the other teams are playing well and they're they're still coming out on top so there's there's a lot there there's a lot of depth there's very few weaknesses when you look at it on the other side we're ranked ahead of them and we're playing them at home is that enough? Not for me personally, because as you mentioned, the the like listen atmosphere and the Viva um, obviously on a on a on a huge match day is fantastic. Um, but you and I will both have seen the survey recently done by the IRFU where it said that a quarter of the people in Went were unhappy with the viewing experience because people kept getting up to get beer. Yeah. So there is that kind of aspect to it where, uh, like, don't get me wrong, delighted it's at home. Would not want to be going anywhere near France with the form that they're in and this, like just the squad that they have. You mentioned there, Dupont, the best player in the world, Roman Entomac, that link up between those two is like something that we haven't seen in terms of rugby uh, nine ten partnerships for a long, long, long time anywhere. Just that level of understanding, that level of like even this like telepathy where they just know what the call is five steps before everyone else, even their own teammates. And then, oh, so right, Entomac goes down. Who you got? Oh yeah, just Matthew Jalabert, three Champions Cups. It's like, like and like just the the wing, like Pernel Villiers, like they're nineteen. Like and the scary thing with France is their age. There's their average age in that squad. I don't. I think there might be four in the six age squad. There's four of them that are over thirty one. And you're like, right, so even if they do slip up this year, what are they going to do in the next four or five years? Like, yeah. Bordeaux, they have a little winger now. And uh, he's, he's, uh, he's on cap, or he's on, he's on cap as, he, as he came into Louis Biardi, but he's been ripping it up with Bordeaux in the top 14. He's only 19, and you're looking at him coming off the bench, and you're like, yeah, like our 19-year-olds, you, you, you might be a little bit of, like scared of them, whereas like, they're just going to trust him in there. Yeah. They have no issues with throwing... People in at the at the at the, at the in the lines then as the Aviva probably would be, um. But like like I I'll be fascinated by when they name the twenty three for the Italy game, um. Obviously in their first up against Italy as to who they're keeping back, so because you'll be able to pretty much guess from that who's going to be coming in to Dublin, um. Similar enough, similar enough with our own squad, obviously, and how we perform against Wales and. Like what 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 will work well? Because again, we're gonna like it's like I said earlier, we're gonna get a nice little test from Gatlin. He's gonna test Andy Farrell, test his tactical acumen, and like again, as you as you mentioned, France can come at you anyway. They can bash through you with the with the pack going through the phases. They can just make three passes and break through with uh, with Entomac and Dupont, or they can kick chase. They can kick chase all day either. So, um, it, it, it it's it's gonna be fascinating to see. This weekend and subsequently the build-up and like injuries obviously are going to play a massive part as they always do. Um, but in turn, like France won't be bothered by coming in to coming to an away game to face them to come to them. So many teams have come to the Aviva in the past and won, um, even on a club level. And so I don't think I don't think I don't think many of them players will be too overawed by the sense of the occasion. That's another thing. France is eventually. Like, Ireland, Ireland, even England, and you know, I even throw Wales in there for these autumn international build them up as something huge. These Southern Hemisphere teams coming up to to our patch, or we're going down to their patch, and uh, and and trying to take what's ours. And France is just like just another rugby game because that's 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 just what it is to them. It's just 
listen, you're like you're gonna come here, you're gonna lose. So good luck to you. But um, so that their their mentality. And, and is that a prediction? Is that a prediction? Like it's not a spoiler. Is it is it a prediction there that that we're gonna lose? Is that what you're saying? Are you are you trying the old reverse jinx there? <laughs> No, if it was her first drinks, I'd be cutting back to us. What is it? Four years ago at this stage, or just back in France minus twenty. <laughs> I, I have our first two games going in a very similar fashion. Okay. I have the away team in both games eking out a kind of three or four point victory. Okay. I don't like. I'm just. I'm the Gatlin factor for Wales is 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 too much for me. I don't think we're going to lose. We're not going to, but I don't think it's going to be as easy as some people are expecting with this Wales in transition. Very different uh, prospect to England in transition. And France are going to be coming in, as I mentioned. Off Now, Italy could. I'm not going to write Italy off completely <laughs> because if you look at their results, they also beat Australia at home. One win in, one win in the Six Nations since 2015. Stranger things have happened. Very unlikely, but it's not impossible. But... It'll like be up there with Japan, oh, South Africa, like for one of the biggest oh, upsets in rugby history. Like way, a, way above that. For it me. would be amazing. <laughs> um, uh, do you know what? It'd be typical Ireland then to just go, oh, right, hey, we lose, right, yeah. Because yeah. you know what? That'd do that and annoy the French and suddenly you've got an angry <laughs> French team coming in. But yeah. no, I think it, like France deal with it fairly relatively easily. I could just see them doing what we're going to do to Wales and just like maybe suffocating the atmosphere. Ireland... A remarkable knack, uh, a remarkable aspect of Andy Farrell's uh, tenure so far. I've been scoring in the first seven minutes of games, yeah. scoring tries. Did it in all three tests and against New Zealand. Did it in the Autumn Series, uh, in the Autumn Internationals. And it's just a case that bashed them early. He could, he could pull a try. He could do the exact same this year. But I just think that France will have uh, France will have enough about them to not panic if they go behind. As you mentioned, 13 minutes in, in five games of rugby. Uh, last Especially year, in the Six, six nations. nations, like, and yeah, um, correct me if I'm wrong as well, but I'm fairly sure one of them was in Twickenham, one of them was in the Principality too. Not easy places, um, no. COVID or no COVID. So I just feel like it won't. It, it, I don't think I don't think we're getting a Grand Slam. I think it's the France one that trips us up. Whether they get a Grand Slam is another question, but. Uh, yeah, I think one a win to start nice and hand, not nice and uh, nice and testing on Saturday. Okay, interesting. I I have a confession to make just as we wrap up here. Uh, a few years ago, I remember we did coverage, and I remember I got a bit of stick for it because I'm like, what's the point of the Six Nations? And and we kind of had we tackled it from that standpoint and so on. Oh. And, and and I'll be honest here, and I'll make a confession. That was just a dramatic arc, just to kind of give it a bit of edge, just for you to kind of pump me up and get me excited about it. And we're just kind of doing a little a bit of a bit. I fucking love the Six Nations. It's going to be great. And this year, World Cup year, so much at stake, protecting our reputation as world number one. There's so much to look forward to. I cannot wait. And uh, Kento, as always, you've got me absolutely hyped. So I cannot wait. David Kent, absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining me uh, to, to help preview. Uh, never miss 
Uh, let's see. We'll, we'll, we'll try to figure things out, but I'd love to have you on to kind of discuss the Super Bowl and, and kind of as well. Oh, look, I've got a lot of stake in there with the Eagles after uh, Combine. <laughs> so I need to do a kind of... And, and need another voice in it. Super Bowl preview, like the old days. So uh, yeah, look, if we could sort something out, I'd love to have you back on. But absolute pleasure anytime we get to catch up. And Kanto's going to be someone that I'm sure you're going to hear plenty of uh, over the coming weeks and months uh, in page 180. Uh, the Irish Examiner and follow him on Twitter at Kanto CCFC. Is there anything else plugging right now or that? Pretty much covers it. Uh, that's, that's that's pretty much pretty much at the moment. Uh, buy a paper, please. Do support me. Physical media, go out, buy it. There you go. Support them. Uh, Irish Examiner. I'm gonna pick up one tomorrow now. Just just because. Good, I'm in of it. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, David Kent, thanks as always. Guys, next up, we're going to go into the spoilerverse for The Last of Us Episode 3. If you haven't listened, press pause right now because you're about to get spoiled. Enjoy. Why are there already pills in the bottle? Enough to kill a horse. This isn't the tragic suicide at the end of the play. I'm old. I'm satisfied. And you were my purpose. I do not support this. Oh, I should be furious. But from an objective point of view, it's incredibly romantic. Oh, oh my God. Oh, I don't know if playing that clip was a good idea. I, I think I'm going to go again here. Jesus. Uh, we're here to discuss The Last of Us. We're going into the spoiler verse. And, well, if you listen to that clip and got all the way through and haven't watched the show went to, you've you've just got a whopper one. I did warn you on the other side of it <laughs> that you're gonna get spoiled. Um, but yeah, from here on out, we're gonna talk the last of us episode three. We're gonna spoil everything that comes up in there. So if you haven't seen it, please go away, come back and listen to us then. Um, if you have seen it and, and you're worried if we're gonna spoil anything in the games, we won't. Don't worry, I will discuss the games, we will allude to it, and we will compare and contrast. So some differences within the games. We're not going to give away any plot points afterwards. Uh, joining me to break this down, I, I suppose, uh, you know, in, in the first episode, we were just kind of having the chats and analyzing it. I suppose after this episode, the only thing we can say is we're here to counsel each other. It is the basis of fan club, Kevin Keane, uh, joining me. Uh, just a quick, before we get to the episode, Kevin, just like, I just want to chat. Are you okay? Are you all right to speak about this? How are you how are you recovering after the emotional turmoil that that episode drudged up? I've signed up for therapy, Rick. <laughs> Who's Rick? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's my old evil twin you're getting mixed yeah. up with. Well, my, my evil twin's not here this week. <laughs> yeah. It's your first cage match. I know, I know. You're an actual evil twin. There you um, go. But yeah, yes, I had to sign up for better help after that yeah. episode yesterday, man. Oh my god, it was just, I it was uh, when you know the storyline in the game going into this, you're like, this is gonna be an absolute action packed kind of chapter of it. <laughs> and man, what they did, what they did—they just said, "No, we're gonna do up." Yeah, not there. Yeah, we go. that's what we're gonna. I do. was not <laughs> expecting to feel like, oh my god, it was, <laughs> it was wonderful and heartbreaking, and yes, yeah, just. 
looks incredible yeah I, I i think he can just stop it there and it's like i wasn't expecting to feel but like <laughs> wow we all felt but look we're, we, i want to break this down i want to discuss it with you and i want to discuss some of the changes they made because there were massive changes obviously from the game but first yeah. off we'll get into the recap so we're all on the same page about what we're discussing and we'll kind of relive it all don't worry i won't go too heavy on the emotion so let's get into it last of us episode three and uh, we begin with joel getting all wistful stacking rocks in memory of test because you know, bitches love stacking rocks, I guess. Ellie goes full Gene Snitsky on him and tells him it wasn't her fault as the two embark on a five-hour hike. Uh, Joel explains to Ellie how the outbreak began, which transports us back to 2003. We meet Nick Offerman's Bill, who's basically become Ron Swanson if Leslie Nope never entered his life. He had a breakdown and was put on gardening leave from the Parks Department. Everything is coming up Bill, though, in the end of the world as he avoids the regular army mass slaughtering. So he uses survival prep skills to basically siphon off his entire town to himself. What do you get the man who hates everyone? You get him an electrified fence with flamethrowers, apparently. I haven't even asked him, and I know that he's not here now, but if Bruiser was watching, he he saw that as pure heaven. That is actually his ideal setup there. He's not a people person. Um, Bill Solitude was disturbed by one day capturing Murray Bartlett's Frank, though, in his zombie hole. And that was all before dinner. hi <laughs> um, Frank wangles his way into a free meal and an after-dinner piano performance, at which stage his gaydar is absolutely screaming at him. It was all very stereotypical, really. A bit offensive, to be honest, because nothing says middle-aged causes a gay man like explosive tripwires, to be fair. It's a tale as old as time. We followed him through the years and seen their lives unfold in a kind of typical post apocalyptic love score sorry all the classic rom-com beats are here like <laughs> you know how when you're arguing about how to decorate your murder fence or how you're trying to have a nice double date while your partner awkwardly starts pointing a gun in your visitor's face or how about that time we've all been through this where we wake up in the middle of the night to find our partners firing a rifle at the few surviving trespassers that they haven't yet burned to a crisp how about trading strawberries for guns or the eventual obvious ending uh, a dual suicide pack all your typical bog standard rom-com stuff it was beautiful really in the end Joel and Ellie arrived too late as Bill and Frank have already had their last supper but a note from Bill to Joel encourages them to open his heart to others and with that beautiful message in the forefront of their minds Joel and Ellie think about this process it and then proceed to rob all of his guns in his car and that was episode 3 of The Last of Us a long long time aka up but with gays and zombies Um, Kev your it's way more episode. romantic than that. It is far romantic. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might have undersold the romance of it all. <laughs> but I need a bit of levity now, yeah. or I may just be totally depressed forever. <laughs> Kev, your thoughts on uh, on, on a long, long time? I, I love the start of it. I love that Joel still had the cuts and stuff in his hand and he was putting them in the river and he, like, he still hasn't properly healed yet. I didn't know what to make of that. The stacking is it like a tribute to Tess or is it? Uh... Apparently, it's like an ancient. I think I read on Twitter it's an ancient India. I didn't understand it either. It's like an ancient burial routine for like hikers who get lost along the oh, way. Okay, I think I, I I could be getting that wrong again. Twitter, a lot of stuff gets Twitter gets said on Twitter, especially in the Elon Musk era. So like again, yeah. don't take my word for it. That's the <laughs> blame whoever said that. Uh, I'm sure there's yeah. lots of different meanings and culture for it, but uh, I yeah. thought it was nice though. Like it was a nice little touch, and I just I just loved the immediate uh kind of conflict of, of I'm not saying sorry. Well. I don't wait to say sorry. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it was brilliant. Like, um, and then they kind of just, even just like, um, 
just then asking about how, how this all started as well and we get Joel's kind of accounts of of how it how he thinks it started but like he's not really too sure as well but it's kind of a good vague idea of it um which is mad like if you think about it because it's like they're 20 years into the apocalypse you you yeah. think you'd not you know what I mean yeah. like we'd have fair like we knew everything about covid like within a few days you know what I mean now we do kind of again the vaccines far away and stuff like that as well but like when you compare it it's like it's mad but again it kind of speaks to the speed and Joel explains it's like again it's not a plot hole Joel is like it started on Friday people started biting on Friday and by Monday it was over yeah. so like it just speaks to how quickly the world just Disintegrated said two day apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But twenty years <laughs> later, they're still like, I think it was the flower or something. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> it's 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 maddening. How could you live that way? Like you didn't know your world has ended, but you don't know how or why. That'd just be that drive me insane as much as that. Mm. But I, I just I loved the um just the kind of start of their relationship a little bit. They're kind of chatting a bit more, and she's just appreciative of the fact that like. He's telling her about like how he got his scar and um and just said like his his version of how the outbreak happened and what planes were like and stuff as well, um and I liked that because I think I think later in the episode as well I suppose when they get to the the shack that they end up going to I love the Mortal Kombat reference as well but yes. <laughs> which was brilliant as well yeah. and even saying Melina's fatality as well I'm a massive Mortal Kombat lore fan love it. um and I love that they got that right in Mortal Kombat two yeah. and everything but um. Yeah. There's, there was bits when they got to the shack of when they, when she goes down at the basement. Also, what was she thinking, by the way? Not really searching out all of that basement. See, and she played the games. Like, come on, I <laughs> <laughs> it's like first forage. You know, now I, you know what? Actually, I appreciate how they had a section of this for foraging. Like, because I was oh, wondering, totally like even last even last week with the clickers, I'm like, uh, Joel, come on, like you need to build a shiv. Like, come on, <laughs> why aren't you looking at any drawers here? Like, don't be shooting a gun. Um, so I love how because again, like people, <laughs> there there is that old meme where they're like, people think the Last of Us is about like grief and death and how do you respond to the end of the world? But really, it's just about looking in cupboards for like you know pieces of tape. That's why. <laughs> um, yeah, that's why pretty much. Like, yeah. So I love how they had that. It was that yeah. was an interesting scene though because again, like kind of there's when we spoke last we didn't really have much of a chance to get a handle on on Bella Ramsey as, as mm. Ellie now we're kind of seeing her a bit more and there are some changes that they're putting to the character like she's obviously the character evolves in a certain way and kind of the incidents that, that happened that we're going to see over the next few weeks and 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 kind of obviously now it's been announced for a second season they're going to kind of influence that but we're kind of seeing now I guess in the game like she's very innocent and she's like and there is an element of that she's like wow a plane a car I'm just yeah. amazed by basic things that we're kind of accustomed to um but then there's also she's a little psychopath like <laughs> so yeah she's become a bit sadistic obviously in the first episode we saw her kind of you know almost taking pleasure and seeing Joel murder the security guard but then today we saw like killing the zombie for sport and being really desperate to have a gun um what Even are your just, thoughts on the? You go ahead, sorry. Yeah, just just the cutting open of of the 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 stalker's face, and you can kind of just just to see what's inside. But and just the face she's even making there as well was kind of a bit reminiscent of seeing Joel murder that guy in the first episode. Yeah. And I know in the games she's a bit she she she's uh she's quite sassy. I think at this point, and is constantly asking I think for a gun in the game around yeah. this time anyway. But that just felt a little bit more on the. Oh, she's a bit sadistic. If she starts killing animals now, I'll be a bit like worried. Yeah, and and, and, and that's a plot point. Like there, there, there yeah. are plot points in that where kind of 
you know, again, it's more something in the game where you're kind of like, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not, I'm not okay with the fact that I'm like killing animals here. Um, yeah. So there is that, but it did feel like kind of someone who's picking the wings off flies and stuff like that. That's that's how that scene felt. For me. Yeah, and unless this is like maybe it's gonna be a path she goes down that Joel has to bring her back out of, maybe as a plot point might be kind of good as well. Um, but it is, it's it's. I think Bruiser said it in the first episode, and I was like, "Nah, she'll be fine." And then when we saw this, I was I was just kind of thinking, "Oh, you might have been absolutely right." About that. Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> it's a really interesting angle. Obviously, look, we we then kind of cut to to Bill and Frank, and there are some huge changes from mm. the game. For anyone who hasn't played it, I'll give you kind of a crash course in, in the differences. So, in the game, first off, we never meet Frank. Frank has already died off screen. Like, and it, like this scene, it's so like. <laughs> The, the polar opposite to what it was in this because this is almost a nice hopeful episode and this part of the game is one of the bleakest parts ever so Frank in this game has already died off screen after hanging himself having become infected uh, and Joel and Ellie meet Bill who's still alive uh, and is left alone and as Joel warns Ellie he's a bit unstable Bill and Ellie then kind of have a little tete-a-tete They're, they have a really contentious relationship Ellie is really cheeky to him and kind of pushing his buttons noting that, noting that he's unstable and later Joel finds a suicide side note where Frank says that he hated Bill's guts all along um, and like it's one quote from it is I looked this up and it was like trying to leave this town will kill me but that's still better than spending another day with you which having seen this episode and how beautiful their relationship was and how that is my now abiding memory of Bill and Frank makes me really sad <laughs> um, but also as well like kind of in the, in the game Bill Join warns Joel of the dangers of getting connected. Whereas in this, he pushes him towards. He's like, no, do get connected. It's worth it. I thought it was it. So like, it's really fairly fairly bleak stuff. Whereas this is obviously the tonal opposite. Um, what are your thoughts on the changes here? Um, I kind of love it yeah. if I'm being perfectly honest, because you can have if you want to play the game because the stories are very very similar. If you want to play the game and get that version of the story, do it. But I'm really glad they veered off so differently in this because you could just, it's, if you put that part of the game into a TV show, it's a generic action set piece with maybe a monster of the week at the end of it. Mm. Um, And it's, it might be a bit badass and cool, but like, like it, like it is in the game and it's very tensed in parts of it when you're hanging upside down and everything. But this, this was just so much more creative and just giving that backstory as well. That Like it's really just subtly alluded to in the game that he, they're even in a romantic relationship. Yeah, it's a throwaway line in the letter, really, and that's kind of it. Yeah, and Bill's so, I think like I have a partner, and that's it. And yeah. he never kind of gets into it more. You kind of feel that he's because there's a bit of hurt and there's a bit of emotion behind the way he delivers it, but that's it. That's all you get. Yeah, yeah, and so so going this way was just so left field, but so like if you're gonna give us this this story, like like you said, make it like the start of up and just completely break everyone. Um. And just even just having a doomsday prepper, I think, be that vulnerable from what you think a doomsday prepper would probably be like. I thought was an amazing idea, like as well. And what better person than Nick Offerman to to do this as well? Because you see him like as Ron Swanson and he's like gruff. But then Ron, when he lets his defenses down a bit, can be just so adorable and cute and sweet and nice and uh, just just a really what's the word I'm looking for, but just like a complete opposite, basically, of, of the, the persona he portrays a lot of the time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I loved it. 
really, he, really loved it. He has that tenderness as well. Like, and there's almost like, yeah, and that vulnerability that he shows is very jarring. Like as yeah. as 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 they have their first meal and then they play the piano and Frank starts <laughs> yeah. to break down his walls. I listened to the 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 HBO podcast with Craig Mazin and, and Neil Druckmann, hosted by Troy Baker, obviously played the original Joel. And they spoke about this and they spoke about like first off wanting to have queer representation throughout all this, including the 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 writing process, but also as well, like kind of the one thing they honed in on was they were kind of like, right, how do you navigate kind of trying to figure out if someone is the same sexuality obviously because it's a minority sexuality so how mm. do you try and figure that out and if the feedback that they got was some people you're guessing with some people you kind of have a feeling and some people you see them straight away even if they aren't even if they don't know themselves and they described this as um Frank saw Bill straight away and there's a scene and I watched it again after listening to the podcast and there's a scene in it where they first meet and, and Bill is holding them at gunpoint and um, like Frank is kind of asking to come in and Bill is kind of only taking Frank in and noticing him for the first time and kind of noticing, oh, I'm actually attracted to this person and he yeah. hesitates and he kind of just takes a beat and just kind of starts thinking to himself and looking at him and then it cuts to Frank and this is the last thing you see before you see them in the house together and you know it's obviously worked. You just see Frank start to smile and that's the moment where he kind of, he goes, oh, I get it. This guy, he he fancies me, you know what I mean? And then obviously yeah. they have that thing. But what I love about it is the fact that First off, you know, you're getting Murray Bartlett, absolute legend, by the way, <clears throat> White Lotus season one, Armand, if you haven't seen it already, check him out. He is iconic. Um, You get that, where obviously he is a gay man, he's comfortable, he knows the beats, he knows the scenarios and stuff like that, and how to play it, and how to represent it, and how to do it tenderly, and this and that and the other. Obviously, Nick Offerman isn't. And he kind of picked up that, you know what I mean? There was a, mm. there was a vulnerability and a discomfort and a kind of, you know what I mean? And there was kind of, you know, and he was able to kind of play on those feelings and that was really effective, you know what I mean? Because there was almost a fear that was the complete opposite of everything we've learned about Bill up until that point, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. Um, And I love that. I thought Nick Offerman w- w- was perfect. What was your favorite moment from this episode though? Was there anything that particularly kind of stood out or kind of hit you? Oh, the the strawberry patch hit me the oh, absolute hardest. Yeah. Like it was. I also loved the conversation as with 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 Joel um and Tess when they were kind of all sitting around the dinner. Yeah. That led into him leaving that letter that that these these are the people we protect line. Um, yeah. are we was it we are the motherfucker me the motherfuckers that protect these people? I think it was, but um. I I love that and I loved um what else was there oh I, one of my favorite things and I think it was just, it's going back to what you're saying about Nick Offerman as well and just their kind of their their first meeting when he's making him dinner and Nick Offerman's kind of got this nervous energy about him when he kind of comes in the door with the two plates and kind of like looks up and just sees that your man's taking some dust off the mantelpiece yeah. there's just little moments like that that is just creating chemistry between the two of them and it's just the start of something i just they just nailed it so much and uh, i just i loved little things like that um i also loved when they're just being at such a romantic state that it just cuts to them having this incredible argument to them yeah. as well <laughs> like full blown <laughs> argument about about decorating the electric fences <laughs> 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 
yeah. Um, I, I love the bits of humor as well that are in that, and that kind of touches on that as well. Like, because yeah, it is. But there, there's bits of humor, but there's intertwined with such meaning that obviously plays a full way out. Because why is they why are they arguing about decorating the fence? Because again, it's it's like this is uh, Marie Bar- or Frank is like this is how I love. You know, let me love the mm. way I love. You know what I mean? And then the end of it, how they kind of talk each other into what happens at the end is kind of you know love me the way I want you to. And that ended up being a really powerful message. But I loved the bits of humor that were in this. And I love this is what I'm loving about the show as well because I think this episode reminded me a bit of Station Eleven. Um, if if anyone's ever seen that, I don't know if you of yourself, Kev, but it's it's yeah. really recommend it because I talked about it in the 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 the, the episode where we discussed the first uh, episode or something I binged over Christmas, and it's a post apocalypse show, but it's one that chooses to look at obviously it looks at all the horror that can happen, but it doesn't focus on that. It focuses on the the possibilities of the nice things that can ha- come from the apocalypse. And in this, this is a story about two people who essentially won the apocalypse. You know what I mean? Um, so there were so much moments of joy and happiness because we got to share that kind of 20 years together throughout the course of the hour there are bits of humor in it as well where it's like oh you think the government are nazis and it's like the government are nazis <laughs> well they weren't then <laughs> or like what was it um so uh joel's like oh i'd be the same when when bill's holding a gun to him and then uh uh what is it frank is like oh you're a paranoid schizophrenic and bill goes i am not a schizophrenic <laughs> <laughs> or even the letter, the most the letter, powerful yeah. moment, and then it's amazing. Like Bella, story. Bella Ramsey's delivery that was just phenomenal, though as She's well. So good. She's so good. She's nailing it. <laughs> she is absolutely nailing it. Um, I also was a good bit of searching around the house as well when Bella was Bella yeah. was in, just looking in drawers. Love yeah. that too. <laughs> um, and then also, but as well, like they, they changed into the clothes from the game, and it's like, oh, oh there they are, there yeah. they are, there they are. Yeah. When the red it. shirt popped up, I was like, ah, amazing. That yes. was brilliant. I absolutely. Do, I, do, do you know that. what else I did notice is when they the first shot that they're in when when Joel puts away the uh, the the rifle that he's holding, you get your first toolbox. I think yeah. of the of of the series too. But there's certain little bits when she's moving stuff around in that back room. It's like it's it's kind of like. Well, I think I just I've picked up on it because I've not seen anybody else actually talk about it. And I'm not sure if maybe it's just in my head of just sound effects of maybe like the tape tape wrappings and stuff as yes. well that might have been in it. Yeah. Um, but they're just really subtle though as well. But you're like, I think I recognize that that bit because I'm playing the game a little bit and kind nice. of I, as the series goes on. So I'm kind yeah. of doing it as as much as I kind of think the next chapter is going to be. Um, and it's just like there's little bits. So it's just because a lot of it's just still fresh in my mind. There, there um, was, there's loads of Easter eggs in this game. Like, for example, we have the clothes you already spoke about. The car mm. is also iconic. Everyone who looked at them when they're in the car together, you're like, oh yeah, that's the car. Yeah. Um, And then also as well, like you had, uh, I don't know if you noticed it, do you know the way it ended on the, the window? Um, so that yes. was a nod to the fact that every time you play The Last of Us, when you go into the main <gasps> menu, it's no. a win. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. So what they wanted to do was, and I'm glad they decided against this, but they still kept this shot in. What they wanted to do was, if you were watching it on a streamer, every time you went to play it, you'd go on the window and they'd have a button where it says press play. You know what uh, I mean? So it felt like the game. But I, I, I'm glad they didn't go that route yeah, because yeah. that would have made it feel like a video game and just taking you out of the when this is such a real human show where you're buying in and investing in these real people as real people. Um, but I did like that thing as well. That's um, such but- a lovely touch. 
but also as well, when Frank said, take me to bed at the end, the song that they played was Vanishing Grace Childhood, if you want to look it up. Um, and that's used to set up one of the most iconic scenes that the original game is known for. Anyone who knows the game knows the scene I'm talking about. Real happy, kind of memorable scene. But that's the music from there. So again, they're kind of using that traditional oh. music, but kind of repurposing yeah. it in this totally new light. Um. The thing I kind of wanted to ask you was like kind of we are absolutely flying through the game storyline. And again, the series is is better because of it, because we're so deep in we're so deeply mixed up in the story and the characters. And again, the show's already becoming absolutely iconic. You can't open Twitter. Like literally, I was looking at it yesterday. I'm like, lads, are we just deciding to spoil The Last of Us? Because everyone wants to talk about it. <laughs> um, but it is, it's taking over the world three episodes in. It's because we're just getting through the first game. And you can probably do the maths and figure out what what's going to happen next they're in the car i think we can tell if you know the game yeah. and know the beats of it where the next episode is going to end and how that's going to kind of go from there um for me though like i'm loving it but i do want to spend more time with the characters we're meeting like I, i'm raging that we only got a couple episodes with tess we only got one episode with bill and frank like we won't see them again like they're gone now um mm. it's almost too quick because i would like i would eat up five seasons just going into this one game in like granular detail or is is the series better for just taking off meteor chunks of the game i, I think it depends if they're gonna go to do more flashbacks because like one thing i thought about the start of this episode is like oh they're not doing a flashback and then it was like no the entire episode is a flashback if yeah so <laughs> yeah, it's the same i thought the exact same but they had no cold open i'm like yeah. lads come on and then yeah I no enjoying there was those. yeah, yeah it's actually a full hour <laughs> so so unless they, they might do more of them maybe to kind of pad it out a little bit um I, I, I know what you mean because the, remember the, the first episode we did of this podcast you were like well what's a, what's a one word that you're gonna you're really looking forward to and I was like gymnasium yeah and that's been completely cut yeah by, by potentially by the looks of it now as well because that's yeah. a part where, where you're with Bill so um uh, yeah they, they 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 cut that so I'm wondering maybe there's gonna be big changes kind of in in the coming episodes as well to 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 flesh it out maybe a little bit more if you kind of think they're going kind of quick yeah. maybe they're going to spend more time in certain areas potentially as well um but i hope we get a bit more characterization on maybe some of the the other characters and not just yeah. just um and i think that's probably what they're going to do yeah fingers crossed um, fingers mm. crossed but again like we've like with the speed they're going if they keep this up it's like it's going to be a new person in every week and then they're yeah. gone they either like die or get moved on or they they, they you know there's, there's a lot like still to go so I'd like they're going very quickly so again I don't know if they, they have enough time to relent there's only six episodes left after all um, they might get an entire Tommy episode probably you know <laughs> yeah Jesus <laughs> just like, Tommy fit that? <laughs> like I, I, I am trying to do the match because I know as well like I, I, I don't say what this means plot wise but like left behind is in there as well like we've seen oh, yeah. clips of that so like that that's probably going to be a full episode in itself because there's a lot in there so like mm. I'm, I'm trying to map out how would you do this over six episodes there's still so much to get to like they could probably cut it in two but they are have they, they, have they said season one is going to be the, the first game yeah yeah, and, and they've announced season two and it's going to cover the second game. Now, season two and the second game, second game is probably twice as big as the first game story-wise. Yeah, that could be... So I, they have to split three. that. They have yeah. to. like, and, and again, with stuff that happens, they really have to. Um, But again, I don't know. I tr But the thing is as well, like I know I'm asking questions, but I also implicitly trust. After the three episodes we've gotten, I implicitly trust this. Here's a yeah. question that I have for you though, okay? As you kind of wrap up and kind of, you know, put, the, put a bow on this episode... 
there's a lot of comparisons to the likes of San Junipero and a Black Mirror, um, you know, Ozymandias and a Breaking Bad, Pine Barrens and the Sopranos, like statement episodes. This is like what the show would be known for. And like episodes that are in the all time Hall of Fame for television. This, I'm caught in two minds about this because on one hand, I'm like, what's this one of the best episodes of television of all time that we've just seen? And the reaction might indicate as much because people are going absolutely insane for this episode. It's everywhere. But also, there's another part of me that's like, was it even the best episode of the show? And there's only been three. <laughs> <laughs> How, where's that falling for you? Kind of, where? What do you think? It's it, it's definitely like it's one of the, the the only episodes of a TV show in a long time that I think has made people really feel and probably cry their eyes out. I'd say and just. It just it went completely left field the way you, the way it's, you think it would go, and I think that's what makes it probably stand out. I think as well, a really just touching story in a post apocalyptic world. Um, yeah, I I I don't know. I I loved it, and I it's one of the episodes as well that I probably will. I've only watched each episode once, but I'm probably gonna watch that one again. I think yeah, before nice. before next week. So it does say a lot about it. I think as well. It's mad um, because I was looking at IMDb and it's somehow the lowest rated episode of the season so far. Now, look, it's an episode about two homosexual men. There's probably a bit of toxic fan. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's an episode where also they went away from the games. So again, I don't put too much stock in these ratings because again, you'll have these pockets of fans that'll just shit on it for those kind of horrible, toxic reasons. Like, So I don't worry too much about that. But like, again, it is the lowest episode of the tree. But also when I look at it, I'm going to think about this episode. You know what I mean? Yeah. In a way that last week was a really strong episode with the clicker and everything and, and Tess and kind of what happened. But like, I don't think I'm going to be thinking about that episode a year from now. I think I'm going to be thinking about this week's episode 10 years from now. You know what yeah, I mean? Like, because it absolutely. really hit me. Also as well, like what I'll never forget about the experience of this episode was obviously we know that the end of it, we don't know what happens with Bill and Frank, but we know that Frank ends up like hating Bill's guts. And as it kind of went on, I had this feeling of dread the entire time of like, how Jer- is this going to get to there? Like, what I was fuck? just about to say this about the episode. Like, that's why I want to rewatch it without this feeling of terror of I'm like, <laughs> oh, he's going to get someone's gonna die here or something really shit's gonna happen yeah um so just being able to rewatch it we're like oh no this ends tragically but very romantically and nice like uh but yeah and also i love the touch as well where if nobody resets the music it just keeps on playing the 80s uh, tune as well yes. for trouble um i loved that too that was a nice little touch they put in but yeah there's the the the, the sense of dread of like uh what's gonna happen here was just, this is so beautiful <laughs> how is it gonna go so horrible where they hate each other and yeah. you know what in the game now because these this is my bill and frank this is my head cannon now fuck the game like you know what yeah, i mean exactly um, because this is so touching so now i'm like frank's a bit of an unappreciative dickhead <laughs> all, all bill did was care for him like, <laughs> um, also so, yeah, fair plates okay. them for not really having that much attacks on their fence in 10 years yeah it, it's a really good fence it's that yeah. aluminum coil it's that coil that y'all got him. he gets some good shit baby. yeah and i loved as well the um the sparks from the um the buzz saws were what ignited the gas and that yeah. made the flamethrowers like that's fucking oh, genius so like good. or like the the secret gun like where oh, he's, he's sitting yeah. watching di- watching it over dinner like and he's just like <laughs> <laughs> But also as well, like Nick Offerman, I, the strawberry scene, another little thing that I love, the strawberry scene, um, 
Nick Offerman, and we know this from if you watch Parks and Recreation, he does a really funny kind of girly giggle where it's like, Hoo! yeah, <laughs> he's not just strawberries, he's just it's just like that is adorable and works yeah. at the moment, but also fucking hilarious. Peak Nick Offerman, um. So that's the episode. Amazing, amazing stuff. Loved it. And, and and again, can't go wrong. Fantastic. The Last of Us, absolutely. For me, I don't, I, I like, again, I know I asked the question, but again, like what I'm looking at now and where I'm judging this is, is this one of the best series of television? Like by the end of it, like three episodes in, they're pretty much perfect. They're playing a perfect game here. And in a way that I don't know we've ever seen an episode, a series of television do. And I'm so happy because it's like, I, I tweeted this out earlier and I've said it before. Great stories are meant to be shared. I have said for so long and I've wanted to share The Last of Us with everyone that I knew and now the world is buzzing and we're getting to see it and I love that I'm so happy and it's just a testament to how well they're doing and I'm so glad that for a game that I cared about this much they're doing it justice and they're doing the thing Um, they have announced that the second series has been announced and like we said it's going to focus on the second game second game I won't get into reasoning or anything, but very controversial, split the fan base, huge to- toxic discourse around it at the time. Like it is, it is, it, it's much more conversation piece. I love it. I think there, in many ways it could be considered better than the first. Um, But like, again, it does split the fan base because of certain things and, and certain decisions. I know you haven't played it. Is this, are you going to like look into playing it once this is over or do you want to kind of follow the TV show and then kind of play or like kind of where are you thinking about around that? Like, no, I, I think um, I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing at the moment of playing little sections of the game from where I think the TV show is going to go. And I'm actually doing kind of well at that at the moment. So I'm just nice. kind of playing little bits, but as soon as the TV show is done, I think it's going to hype me up to want to play the second <laughs> game, to be honest, because yeah. I'm, because I'm, I'm playing the first game at the moment too. It's probably gonna hype me up to want to play the second because it's just been sitting here for ages and I just have never got the really the uh oh, the wow. chance of doing it really. Oh, wow. There's always been those. There's always been something else. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's amazing. I'd recommend it because a lot of play in The Last of Us is about you are the characters and you're empathizing with them, mm. and a lot of it is you're feeling things that the things in the game where you're like. I have to play as this character and I don't want to do this, but I have to go through it. And you feel the emotions of the character. And there's a lot of that. And the game is around that. So it's going to be a completely different experience. And as we see, you might think you know what's going to happen, but they'll just do an episode like this. And they'll yeah. just twist it anyway. So you can kind of have the best of both experiences anyway, if it, if it is something you want. I, I, I did have one of the creatures spoiled on me, it. but that, that's about it. Okay. Which, okay. which creature? I, I won't. Just... Uh... <laughs> okay. Well, we'll say nothing, but uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, there is some big spoilers <laughs> out there, so be very careful uh, on Twitter. I've seen things that are just huge, just like absolutely thrown away. So be yeah. uh, tre- tre- tread with care, guys, out there. Um, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> Look, they're absolutely nailing it, and I'm loving these conversations with yourself as well. So, uh, can't wait to have more discussions uh, and continue to to get into this because, uh, like I said, great stories are made to be shared. Um, Kev, absolute pleasure as always. Uh, Thank make you so sure much. Check out Fan Club on uh, Spotify. Is written you're kind of doing at the moment, written you, and you want to plug or mention, or is that we save that for a, a later day? Um, we are just recording music at the moment, so something will be out later in the year. So Amazing. I'll, 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 yeah, you'll know when. Keep us <laughs> updated. Don't, don't I worry. I can't wait. Exciting <laughs> stuff. Uh, chat soon. Anyway, Kev, thanks for joining us. As Cheers, always. man. That's all the time we have this week on page 180. Next week, we've got Kendo back as we give you a viewer's guide on what you need to know ahead of Super Bowl 57. We'll no doubt continue to have our minds blown by The Last of Us. Plus, I'm hoping to review the whale, St. Omer, Knock at the Cabin, and Pamela, a love story. But until then, this has been page 180. 
Mikey. And you have a big swinging penis yourself there, my man. 